Luke 16, beginning in verse 1, God's word says, Jesus also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him, and he said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning the master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, One hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Well, what do you make of that story? I typically, on a Monday, will translate the passage. I'll read it several times. I'll make a very broad, rough draft of it based on the translations. And then as I'm writing through, I'll note questions I have, applications I think could be made, thoughts to pursue. Well, my initial rough draft was filled with questions. How can this manager be praised? Did Jesus really say that we should make friends with people by using unrighteous wealth? Am I going to get to heaven based on my friends? And we could go on and on, but thankfully, we have things called commentaries. And they don't answer all your questions, but they're helpful. So I turn in Daryl Bach's commentary. The first words are, the parable of the unjust steward is one of the most difficult of Jesus' parables to understand. I thought, well, at least we can agree on that. What do you make of this passage? It's one that for centuries, for all the time, that people have read and said, what is Jesus trying to say here? And while the details can be a little unclear and a little troubling, as we look, the broad picture could not be clearer. What Jesus is saying is, like this manager, we all have an owner. And one day, we're going to have to give an account to that owner and so we should live today in a wise way, preparing for the future. And as he goes into this, Jesus will then apply this and say, look, how you relate to money actually reveals your true character. Because you want to use money to serve others rather than be a servant of it. You know, money may appear just to be ink on a sheet of paper or a round coin or numbers in a ledger. But Jesus says money is actually a great indicator light on your dashboard. 
it reveals whether you're healthy or not. And to see that this morning, we'll see three things. First, in verses 1 through 7, we'll look at the story, the shrewd manager. Then in verse 8, we'll see that Jesus praises the praising master. And then lastly, in verses 9 through 13, the transformed disciple. But first, verses 1 through 7, there's this story, and it's important to note, and we'll (coughs) note this as we go through, Jesus is telling this parable to his disciples. These are people who are already trusting in Christ, not people who have not done so. And he's telling them of this wealthy man. This man is so wealthy, he can't even manage his estate. He needs to get a manager to oversee it. But then he starts to hear that this manager is actually not doing a very good job. Now, was he stealing? Was he just a bad manager and didn't know how to allocate the resources? We're not told. But either way, the owner calls him in and says, you are not taking care of my estate properly. And to use modern language, he fires him. But he basically says, before you leave, I want you to turn in the books. You need to show me what has been going on. Well, then this leads to great fear of the future for the manager because he looks at his options and he sees only two. Well, I can go work digging ditches, but he's always worked with quill and parchment and he's not strong enough physically to do that. But it's not just a physical problem because psychologically he's always been in the position of power. He's too psychologically proud to humble himself, to beg. So what can he do? Well, he then comes up with a shrewd plan that will help him once he's jobless. Starts calling in the people who had taken loans from his wealthy owner. And when the first man arrives, the manager asks him how much he owes. This is really interesting because the common procedure of that day was if I loaned you money, you would actually write out how much you owed, and then you would give it to me. That way, if there was ever any question, well, did I really owe that much? I could show you your handwriting and say, you wrote down what you owed. I didn't make this up. And yet the manager asked them how much they owed. Well, they already knew exactly how much they owed, but it's the psychological effect of reminding them, I owe that much which will then lead to their relief, and then they're later wanting to be generous to this manager. Well, the first man man replies, I owe 100 measures of oil. And the manager says, sit down, quickly mark through that and write 50. I mean, could you just imagine that? You get a call tomorrow, hey, this is Texoma Credit Union. We want to talk to you about your home loan. Can you come in? And this is a scam. You show up and they say, how much do you have left? And they say, oh, psh, let's just cut that in half. What? You'd be rejoicing. And then another guy calls him and he has 80 core, he owes 100 cores of wheat. And he says, cut it to 80. And it seems like this keeps going on over and over, person after person. And the manager cuts the debt 20 to 50% over and over. And these people surely are all now feeling great generosity and love and appreciation for this manager. Now this is one of those places where we pause and go, well, what is the manager doing? Is he doing something immoral, illegal here? Well, as you read, you can get different answers. Some say the steward is merely lowering what he was allowed to do, and he's taking away his commission. So yes, he's doing this, but this was his portion. 
Others say, well, in Jewish society, you were allowed a certain interest, but not much. And this manager is helping get rid of the illegal interest. And so he's actually doing the owner a favor. And then some just say, well, look, he's stealing from the owner. Well, Jesus doesn't go into all those little details, but he is very clear because verse 8, he calls him a dishonest manager. So no matter how you work that out, in some way he is being dishonest. He's doing something that is self-serving so that later they will love him. And so at that point, we could all imagine Jesus' next words. So don't be like this manager because that's corrupt. Except that's not what it says. Then in verse 8, we read, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. That's our next section, the praising master. What in the world? Is Jesus here praising dishonesty? You might go out today, you get to your neighbors if you're a kid, and your neighbor asks you, what did you learn in church today? hey, I learned I should go steal extra donuts and then share them with all my friends because that way they'll be my friends too. Well, is that what Jesus is saying? Look, it's okay at times to really be a little dishonest, to round things in your favor because that way you can help yourself. Well, no, that's not what Jesus is saying because he's later going to say we should be faithful even in small things. Well, then is Jesus just being sarcastic? Like he doesn't really mean this. Well, no, he's not being sarcastic. Well, what does he mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's answer that. Notice what the manager praises him for. It's very clear. It says he commended him for his shrewdness. That's what's being praised, his acting shrewdly. Thus, he's not praising the manager for his dishonesty and perhaps illegal activity. He praises him for being shrewd. But what does it mean to be shrewd? It's not a word that we commonly use. And when I first hear, I tend to think maybe someone who's conniving, someone who's manipulative, maybe backstabbing. Except that's not, if you look up the word, what it means. When Jesus uses the word shrewd, it's referring to being sensible, being thoughtful, being prudent, being wise. In other words, Jesus meant the manager was prudent or wise to realize his situation, his dire situation, and act accordingly. Thus, what Jesus commends here is not the morality of all the specific actions, but it's his awareness of the situation and acting accordingly. James Boyce writes, There is only one way the manager is set before us as an example, and that is his ability to see what was coming and plan for it. And that one characteristic though he was certainly far from commendable in other ways, he was eminently wiser than countless people who perhaps have never cheated anyone out of anything, yet failed to plan for that moment when they must, each one, give an accounting before God. And Boyson draws out two ways, two things that should be admired in the manager's actions. First, the manager saw things clearly. Notice when the owner fired him, He didn't curl up in a paralyzed position saying, there's no hope, there's nothing I can do. You may have known people like that. Situations look desperate, and you say, what are you going to do? And they're like, I don't want to talk about it. They just paralyze, they get frozen up. There's nothing they can do. The future just causes them 
to be locked up in inactivity. Well, he doesn't do that. He saw the issue clearly. But on the other end, he didn't pretend like it wasn't there. He knew it was real. He didn't just wish it away. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'll have to leave one day. No big deal. No, he realized the situation. And Jesus is asking us, have we seen the issue clearly? Whether you like it or not, you exist. Hopefully you realize that. As is someone who exists, you had to come from somewhere. So you either have a creator or you don't. If you don't have a creator, well then live however you want because it doesn't matter how you live. But if you have a creator, then you'll have to give an account. That's looking at the issues clearly and going, one day, like this manager, I'm going to have to give an account. And that leads to the second thing that a manager should be admired for. And that was then taking steps to be prepared for the future. He didn't just say, well, something's going to be bad, so uh, can't do anything. He then took steps so that he would be fine. Have you responded to the problem? Have you seen that each of us will not be able to fully account for all we've said and done, and yet God has been merciful? He has made a way in Christ to have mercy and forgiveness. For now, though, Jesus says, for the sons of this age are more shrewd than the sons of light in dealing in their own generation. In essence, Jesus is saying, People who only care about the here and now, about living on earth, they often give more planning. They often give more thought about how to achieve more earthly happiness than do believers in securing more eternal happiness. Of course, people who are doing that are not always doing it in wise ways. Maybe they're even pursuing their happiness destructively, but they give more thought, more energy to it than we often do into our efforts. And yet this passage is really based on two important assumptions that I wanted to pause and reflect on. And the first assumption is that everything you have is not actually yours. You're merely a steward. You're a manager. You're someone who overlooks, who oversees the possessions of another, the possessions of God. You're probably familiar with the book of Job. And in the book of Job, after Job's friends come and don't give much solace, then Job speaks and he wants to hear from God and then God responds. And in Job 41, verse 11, God rebukes Job and says, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Or in Psalm 50, 10 through 12, God declares, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and all its fullness are mine. Often children will say, what was my first word? What's the first thing I did? And one word that somehow... I don't ever see parents teaching it, but every kid learns is mine. That's mine, and you've got to grab your grip around it. We all learn mine. I had a professor who was telling us as students that he had been talking to his children about wanting to share and be generous. At the same time, he also wanted to teach them, look, 
if something's theirs, you can't take it. You know, the two sides, be generous, but also don't take from others. And so he said, okay, if someone has the toy first, if they're touching it, it's theirs. You can't play with it. We all know what's going to happen next. Because a few days later, he's sleeping. It's the early morning, and he starts hearing noises downstairs. And as he groggily stumbles down the stairs, he sees the pile of all their kids' toys, and his son outstretched and says, I touched it first. Mine. We all want it to be mine, not yours. You can't have it. I had it first. And yet, Jesus is saying, my father's. It's his. And though he allows you to oversee some of it, it's not actually yours. And one day, like this manager, you're going to have to give an account for how you used it. And that really leads to the second major assumption of this passage, and that is we will have to give an account to God for our actions. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says it this way, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Or Hebrews 9.27, which says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Thus we can't say, well, it's my money, I can do whatever I want with it. We will have to give an account to the owner, to God. Yeah, that then Jesus talks in a way that is very different from the way we might talk today in our churches. Jesus doesn't then say, well, look, you're going to have to give an account to God, so what you need to do is make a profession of faith. What you need to do is sign on this card and nail it to this cross. You need to walk this aisle. All those things are good and have a proper place and have been meaningful in my life and perhaps yours. But then Jesus basically tells them what you need to do now is live differently in regards to your money. Why would Jesus do that? Well, though we might be shocked, as you study the Bible, you would realize this is actually quite normal. The most often referred to topic in the Bible is money. And there are twice as many verses regarding money than to prayer and faith combined. Why? Because money reveals our true character. And if we've been born again, made a disciple of Christ, trusted in Christ, then we will relate to money differently. And so we see this over and over. We already saw this in Luke 3 when John the Baptist is calling people to repent. And they say, what should we do? To three different groups, he tells them, treat money differently. Or in a couple of weeks, or probably a few months, we'll get to Luke 19. And there, when a man named Zacchaeus is confronted by Jesus, Zacchaeus then, who was a tax collector, says, I'm going to give back all that I've defrauded, and I'm going to give to the poor, and what I've defrauded I'll pay back four times. And you could look at 19, Luke 19.9, and Jesus says, Zacchaeus, that's irrelevant. What you do with your money doesn't matter. It's just about your profession of faith. Well, that's actually not what he says. Turn to Luke 19, 9. Because Jesus says something radically different than we would expect. Luke 19, 9. And Jesus said to Zacchaeus, Today salvation has come to this house. How can Jesus say salvation has come because of the man's giving away of money? 
Is Jesus teaching salvation through philanthropy? Well, no. Jesus is saying the way we treat our money reveals who our true master is. It reveals our true condition of our hearts. And thus, Jesus is going to commend, he's going to command in the next few verses, verses 9 through 13, how to live as wise, transformed disciples. And I mentioned this earlier. You have to remember the context. 16.1, Jesus is not speaking to the crowds. He's not speaking to Pharisees. He's not saying, this is how you become a disciple. He's saying, this is how you live transformed as a disciple. And so in verses 9 through 13, our third section, the transformed disciple. And Jesus emphasizes this because he says, and I tell you. And he's going to tell them three ways they and we should relate differently to our money. And the first in verse 9 is be generous. He says this by telling them to make friends with unrighteous money, or your version might say mammon. Again, we scratch our head, or at least I scratch my head this week. Make friends with unrighteous money. So like I should go rob a bank, like kind of like Robin Hood here, and then go around and give to others, and that way when I'm in jail, at least I'll have some other illegal people who are like me. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Your unrighteous money means something equivalent, kind of like filthy lucre, we might say. It's talking about how people often get money unrighteously or how they relate to it sinfully. As you look through the Bible, most often, I would say every case except this one, money is not seen to be evil. And here, I do think Jesus is speaking more offhand about how it's used or sought sinfully. People will sometimes say, look, money is evil. Well, that's not actually what the Bible says. The Bible says, we read it earlier, 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Imagine money being like a knife. A knife can do a glorious thing. It can cut bread and slather it with butter. It's a good thing. Maybe even glorious. But that same knife can attack someone so that you can steal their wallet. The knife is a neutral object. You can use it for something good. You can use it for something bad. But a knife is neither good nor bad. Money is the same thing. Money is not inherently bad. It's not inherently good. How do we relate to money? How do we use it? Money can be used to provide food, shelter, be generous with others. Or money can be used for self-indulgence, hoarded for yourself. And yet, we're being a little dishonest if we don't admit the pull, the longing that our hearts find in money. All I need is a little more, then I'll be fine. But there never is enough. And thus Jesus commands that rather than loving money, we should love God and people with it. And thus Jesus is saying, use your money to be generous. Make friends with your money. That's what he's saying. Use your money to bless them, to show hospitality, take them out to a meal, give to those who have need, give to missionaries, give to others. In other words, don't hoard it all for yourself, but be generous and give. Remember the contrast here. The sons of the earth are more wise, he says, 
than the sons of light. We are encouraging us as a church to take some time in January to fast and pray that God might, through us, draw people to himself. However, sometimes we have a hyper-spiritual way of thinking about this. God, would you draw people to randomly walk in our church and come to know him, know you? Well, that would be wonderful, and that does happen. But often, God works through his people to draw people to himself. You know, the sons of the world take great efforts to plan and strategize to increase their business, their club, their agenda. How are you strategizing to reach your neighbors, your coworkers, your family members? No, I don't mean crass, manipulative relationships where you feel guilty because the pastor talked about reaching out. So you go over today and you knock on your neighbor's door and hand them a track and say, you better repent. All right, thank you. Whew, I'm done this year, 2020. I evangelized. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about building friendships using your wealth so that you would be a blessing rather than hoarding your wealth for yourself. I believe that's what Jesus is calling us to, being generous, to asking someone, how are you really doing? Getting to know that classmate or coworker to invite someone over for lunch or dinner, to you fill in the blank for your context. Those around you, how can you get to know them and use even your money to be a friend and be generous to them? Your prayer is a wonderful thing, but it's presumption if we don't then take the steps that God has normally given for that to be fulfilled. It'd be like us praying, God, give us this day our daily bread and then going on the couch and Netflix binging for the next month and then going, why didn't God provide the bread? If we're going to pray for God to draw people to himself, then we need to be generous and invest in relationships through which he might draw people to himself. Jesus is telling us to be more wisely passionate, strategic, and generous with our money so that we might receive friends and then be welcomed into eternal dwellings another mind-puzzling statement so that they will receive us into eternal dwellings well the they could refer to god luke 12 48 everyone to whom much was given of him will be much required and from him to whom they entrusted much they will demand the more they's probably talking about god so it could be god or it could be talking about friends if you lived in the 90s and you were evangelical Christian, you probably heard the song Thank You by Ray Boltz. Seem to hear it every graduation at my Christian school. It's a great song. But in the song, it talks about this man I dreamed and went to heaven. I'm not going to sing for you. Don't have to worry. And he there, when he gets to heaven, has someone come up to him who thanked him for being his Sunday school teacher. And then someone else who comes up and thanks him for giving to the mission fund. And then it goes on and these various people the friends welcoming him to heaven because his generosity blessed their life. I would think Ray Bolt's probably got the song from these verses. And then the chorus then goes, Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am a life that was changed. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am so glad you gave. In either way, whether they is referring to God receiving you to eternal dwellings or friends receiving you, Notice again the theme we've seen over and over that God promises rewards 
for faithful service on earth. It is not, you're going to hell, oh, now you're saved, that's it, don't worry about anything else. No, the way you live now matters. God will reward those who live faithfully for him. Again, notice that Jesus doesn't give the normal advice we might expect. You know, when people realize, you know, money, possessions, those aren't going to satisfy you. All right, give it all away. Be a minimalist. Declutter. That's what you should do. It's not what he says. He says, use it to be generous. The issue is not whether you have stuff or don't have stuff. It's whether your stuff has you. You We can use the stuff we have to be generous. That's the point. However, Jesus is also honest because notice in verse 9 he says, when it fails you. The money we have is great, but it won't go with us for eternity. You probably have heard of John D. Rockefeller. He's one of the wealthiest men that after ever lived. And after his death, someone asked his accountant, well, how much did John D. leave? And he said, all of it. Didn't matter how much he had. He left every single penny. Your wealth will leave us. Proverbs 23, 4-5. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. And Jesus is saying, look, if you've come to be his disciple, you realize that what really matters is people. That's what's going to last forever. And that's what I need to invest in. Alistair Begg noted very well, the question is not what have you left behind, but what have you sent ahead? As you look at your investment portfolio, is it full only of stocks and bonds and mutual funds, or does it have people? I've invested in these people because I want to see their lives following Christ. I'm investing in them because I'm investing for eternity. My portfolio is filled of lives that I've poured into with my time, my resources, my energy. But Jesus then says in verse 10, the second way we should relate differently, and he basically says, be faithful with whatever you have. Because it's at this point that a lot of people say, well, yes, okay, I agree with what you're saying, Pastor Jeremy, but I would if only I had a lot of money. But I don't have that much, so this, these, are, these verses are applying to those rich people out there. We have this amazing ability to know how to use other people's money. Well, if I had that money, I would be giving to this organization and I would help that charity and I would be giving it here. And Jesus is saying, look, don't be faithful with what you would have. Be faithful with what you do have. That's what you need to focus on. As well, though, I think we need to realize how culturally minded that is. Imagine if all of a sudden we could bring in a man who lived in Niger, Africa, in a tribe, lived in a hut, had to walk a mile every day just to get to the river to get the water they're going to use, and worked from spring into fall with one tool to keep the weeds out just so he can raise enough to make it to do that all over again the next year. And then we were talking about, well, I know what we would do if we were rich. 
he would look at you and say, you mean in that climate-controlled house which you drove to in your car and in the pantry in which you have all that food and all of these things? Now, don't say that in any way to make us feel guilty. We shouldn't feel guilty. Because whether you're the tribesman in Africa or whether you're here in Wichita Falls or whether you live in the nicest country club in New York City, be faithful with what you have is what Jesus is saying. Don't be looking up at them and going, well, I would be faithful if I had that much. And don't be looking down. In this issue, look at yourself. Am I being faithful with what God has given me? And Jesus continues, though, because he says the one who is unrighteous with a little will also be unrighteous with much. And Jesus is saying, look, your character is your character. You are who you are. It doesn't matter whether you're here or there. If you're someone who will cheat on your taxes, then you'll cheat somewhere else in your life. You, know, you may have known this people who are having a rough time, and they oh, I'm just going to move somewhere else. But then they find the same problems there. Well, why? Because they're still there. Our location, our situation can have an effect, and we shouldn't minimize that. But we have to realize that often the biggest problem is inside of us. And this is really a call to recognize the way that we allow subtle issues. Oh, that's not a big deal. And yet Jesus is saying, no, if you're unfaithful with little, you'll be unfaithful with much. You don't buy the lie that this isn't really that big a deal. You know, I know I'm copying answers, but this is just on a take-home quiz. They don't really care. Well, I know I'm lying, but it's, it's just how long I was using the tablet. It's no big deal. I know I'm, it's only a packet of ketchup. Who cares if I steal? It's no big deal. Jesus is saying every single action you do matters. And it shows and, in fact, builds your character to good or ill. You know, the importance of doing your best in every single thing, being faithful even in little, so that you'll be entrusted in much, is illustrated well in the life of Booker T. Washington. I mentioned him before. He was an African-American born into slavery in the U.S. And after he was freed, he had a voracious appetite for learning. He would work even as a preteen all day and then go study at night so he could learn how to read. And then he heard of this college that would allow African-American ends. And so he did everything he could to save so he could go. Except he could only save enough to get about halfway. So he got there and then he started working some more. And at that time, sadly, they wouldn't allow him to stay in their motels and their housing so he was living on the street so he finally got enough to make it to the university and yet when he came in he looked a little disheveled and the woman was not sure is this an actual student or is this a homeless person just trying to get in for a couple weeks before we realize and so she had him sit on the side and as he sat there for hours he saw people coming in and being admitted and he realized she's not sure if she should let me in finally she said to him, look, the room next to us really needs to be swept. Could you go do that? Washington then writes in his book, I swept that room three times. Then I got a dusting cloth and I dusted it four times. All the woodwork around the walls, every bench, table, and desk, I went over four times with my dusting cloth. When I was through, she came in, took out her handkerchief, and rubbed it on the woodwork about the walls and over the tables and benches. When she was unable to find one bit of dirt on the floor, 
or a particle of dust on the furniture, she quietly remarked, I guess you'll do to enter our institution. He was being watched. Is he going to be faithful in this little thing? Oh, sweep the room. Okay, I can go do that real quick. I'm done. No, he knew I have to be faithful in this little task because that will then allow me to be given the opportunity to be entrusted with much. And Jesus is saying here, verses 11, 10 through 12, that if we're faithful with small things, he'll entrust us with much. Even, I think he's saying, entrusted with eternal things, things that really matter. So Jesus is saying, look, as a disciple, be generous. As a disciple, be faithful with no matter what you have, whether it's a penny or a million dollars. Be faithful with that. And then lastly, verse 13, serve God with money. Don't serve money. Jesus says, no one is able to serve two masters. And many people think the response to Jesus is, think new thoughts. Okay, I was a sinner. I need a Savior. I'm good. And yes, you should realize that. But Jesus is saying, coming to him is also allowing him, submitting to him to be your master. That he now runs your life all the way down to your money. In fact, he says it's impossible to have two masters, for you'll eventually love one and hate the other. I was a math teacher for six years, and one of the hardest things to do when you're a teacher is to take over a class midway through the year. Because either they hated that other teacher, or they loved them. And if they loved them, nothing you could do was correct. Mrs. So-and-so never did it that way. She let us not do that. They loved one, and so they hated the other. And that works out in all of our life. And the challenge here is, for most of us, there's not a moment in our life when it's like, here's a million dollars or sin. We aren't given these choices. It's the day in and day out. Where's my hope? Where's my trust? In this crisis, is it my wise insurance and my savings that are going to get me through? Not to say you shouldn't have those things. Or is it God who's going to get me through? Does the present seem enjoyable because I have enough stuff? Or is the present enjoyable because I have God? I know that the challenge of passages like this, of preaching them, is that often, as with evangelism before, we can, okay, next week, bigger check in the plate. All right, I'm better. And yet Jesus doesn't want one-time guilt-driven actions he wants a life of joy that delights to give he wants us to respond not just oh okay i gotta be generous i get to be generous i get to reflect my god that though he was rich he became poor so that i might become rich as paul says second corinthians 9 7 each one must give as he's decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And you're only going to have that as you reflect on the whole parable, that I'm that manager that hasn't treated everything the way I should, and that I'm going to have to come and give an account, and there's no way I can on my own, and yet God in Christ came, and He lived perfectly for me. He was my substitute, and now enjoy. I want to live like that. Uh, 
I often move with an illustration, but today I'm just going to end with some very practical advice. To steal an old saying, failing to plan is planning to fail. Hearing my dad coming through me this morning. Failing to plan is planning to fail. You know, it's easy to go, okay, I see what needs to happen. Except sometimes we need to pause, set aside time in our life, and plan to live differently. You know, to be a generous person is not a flying by the seat of your pants. Sometimes you need to structure your life to make budgets and say, I want to live generously, so I'm going to allocate money so that I have the resources to do this. You know, Jesus is not just calling us to, well, when you feel in your heart, then give. He's calling us to, like the manager, sit, reflect, and plan for the future. Plan by thinking about how can I be a generous person. So like God, may we give sacrificially, joyfully, generously, knowing the joy it brings. And even as Jesus is saying here, eternal rewards that God promises from it. To steal one more aphorism, if you aim for nothing, you'll hit it every time. Let's pray. Lord, may we aim for your glory. May we aim to be disciples that have been transformed by you so that we live generously, that in everything we are faithful, and that, Lord, we wouldn't be ruled by our money, our possessions, but we would be the ones owning it and using it for our good, our neighbor's good, and ultimately your glory. Lord, thank you for your word that guides us, that challenges us, and that directs us into steps of lasting joy. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.